Hey, this is Mark A. Altman of Inglorious Trexperts in the 430 movie, and I want you to join Ron Howard, Cameron Crowe, Scott Mance, Roger Corman, William Shatner, Paul Schrader, Nicholas Meyer, Henry Winkler, Amy Heckerling, Dee Wallace, Leonard Moulton, and over 100-plus stars, directors, writers, critics, and studio executives on our epic four-week look at the greatest geek year ever, 1982, including deep dives into E.T., Poltergeist, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Conan the Barbarian, My Favorite Year, Diner, Fast Time, at Ridgemont High, The Beastmaster, Blade Runner, and of course, Megaforce. Greatest Geekier Ever premieres Saturday, July 8th on The CW, or watch a special encore presentation on Tuesday, July 11th, or anytime on The CW app. Remember, the good guys always win, even in the 80s. Get ready. This summer, the Inglorious Live Tour continues. I am ready. Dress- Are you so ready? ready? Are you <laughs> sure you're ready? ready? Well, we're coming to a city near you. Don't miss Ashley Edward Miller, Darren Docterman, and myself, Mark A. Altman, as we descend on San Diego Comic-Con, July 20th to 23rd. Oh GalaxyCon. Raleigh. 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 North Carolina in uh, July 27th through July 30th. Then we're going to be Get lucky in Las Vegas oh for my. the creation 57-year mission convention on August 3rd to the 6th. And then finally, we're back in Austin, Texas, Labor Day weekend for yet another great GalaxyCon. So for more details, go to ComicCon.org, GalaxyCon.com, and CreationEnt.com. And we'll see you out there on the final frontier or in Raleigh. Hey, this is Mark Altman of Inglorious Trexperts in the 430 movie. And if you're a fan of our podcast, you don't want to miss Deck 78, available now by subscribing at TrexpertsPlus.com. This is a bonus podcast full of great discussions about popular culture, film, and television. Here's a sneak peek. Do you guys remember what a huge pop culture phenomena a $6 million man was? Dude, oh my God. Let me just tell you. I mean, it's it's difficult to... Um, to imagine it now. Although, actually, no, it's not. Because as franchise happy as we are right now with, like, a million shows that call themselves Star Trek, um, a million Star Wars shows, a million whatever related to whatever IP, uh, people were obsessed with the, six, with the $6 million man and what came out of it. Because not only did you get the bionic one, um, you also had, there was a, on the Saturday morning for, like, three episodes, there was a bionic boy TV show um, about a kid who like broke his legs or something skateboarding, which felt more like a PSA. But, but what the hell? It kind of stupid kid who uh, who ends up getting bionics. The on the Captain and Tennille show, they had a sketch: the bionic watermelon, and the premise was the watermelon falls off the back of a truck and it becomes bionic and fights crime. I mean, that's... So in that case, love did not keep it together. It was no, bionics. bionics kept it together. <laughs> bionics, bionics will keep us together. <laughs> Mark Rivera, uh, I think I know what the outro song has got to be tonight. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, the, go ahead, the thing that I remember the most was that uh, in those days, the the sort of uh, the indicator that your uh, show had hit the big time is when they made coloring books of it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And uh, Six Million Dollar Man had uh, a, a bunch of uh, fascinating coloring books. But, you know, you don't see any coloring books today 
with no. you know popular stuff. There was no. I think the last one was Matlock or something. <laughs> <laughs> Those Murder were three wrote. color coloring books. <laughs> but uh, look, it, it was it was huge. I, I've told this story before, but in I think kindergarten and first grade uh, at recess, uh, my friends and I would play Six Million Dollar Man in the in the schoolyard, and uh, I would uh, you know jump at least four steps down to the ground. Uh, playing Six Million Dollar Man and Steve Austin, oh, and it yeah, was absolutely. awesome. And this and was you, years, years no, before it the was Bionic Austin, woman. not awesome. Austin. That's Austin. Austin. But you always uh, heard that sound effect in your ears. Oh, and 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 we tried to make it too. I know, but you know, we all remember that so well. So, isn't it interesting when you go back and revisit it to realize that that sound effect wasn't mm. in the show? Initially, yeah. it was well, only it, later. It certainly wasn't in the pilots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't in the pilots, and in fact, that that classic introduction, you mm-hmm. know, like what we call them now, a saga cell. It's not only right. credit, but it was also a saga cell, which being the Cylon tyranny. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that um, uh, didn't didn't materialize until later with the with the with the show. It wasn't in any of the three TV movies, and in and fact, of course, they had a goofy theme song for oof. the uh, pilot, Dusty Springfield. Yeah, oof. It yeah, was a, a kind of a kind of a an attempt at a James Bond style yeah. theme song, and uh, it was yeah, it was awful. Not good. Well, but it was more <laughs> than that, right, Steve? I mean, the pilot is is kind of um, when you look back at it now, I think it'd be hard for anybody to say this is a particularly strong TV movie cyborg. Maybe you guys disagree. I mean, it had great cast at Darren McGavin, and uh, it had Martin Balsam. But it it is slow. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't really. It takes a while to get going. It was recut as a two parter um, for the show, and you can watch it on Peacock now, where all the Six Million Dollar Man's are. And it was called uh, what was it called? It had a ridiculous name. Well, it, um, it, uh, it was called um, Oh gosh, The Moon in the Desert. The Moon, the moon in, in the Desert. desert. Right. Yeah. But then. They hand it off because they realize they got lightning in a bottle, but they're not quite sure what to do. And they bring in Glenn Larson. Now, yeah. as we talked about on previous shows, Glenn Larson was known as Glenn Larceny because <laughs> he would rip off whatever the popular movie was at the time. In this case, so when he's charged with doing $6 million, man, he turns it into literally James Bond. Yeah. It's James Bond with bionics. And yeah. that second movie... Is is it's better than the first one? Stronger, faster, faster. <laughs> <laughs> so subscribe today at TrexPlus.com and don't miss a single episode of Deck Seventy Eight. Fire the rockets! Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Ashley Edward Miller, and we are two-thirds of... The Inglorious Trexperts. And once again, we've been abandoned by our number one, uh, Mr. Uh, Darren Docterman. He's at Wonderfest. It Wonderfest. sounds so wonderful. Wonderfest. It does. It's Wonderfest. It's wonderful. We should make up a stars. song for him. No, Wonderfest is wonderful. He, uh, he is... Um, uh, um, I guess with Kirk Thatcher, 
and uh, Bill George. And it's all about building models and model kits, the little model kits and stuff. They're building models and stuff. It's a big convention for that, I guess. And our friend, uh, our listener, uh, Jason Vavona was there with his family. I saw on social, my Vavona. Mama, my, 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 my Vavona. I hope that's how you pronounce his name. Yeah, me so, too. Well, you know what? If it isn't, it is now. Well, I mean, yeah, but this has been a lot of Darren-free episodes. So, yeah. anyway. Yeah, but, I thought uh, you we were the one who was retiring. What the hell? Yeah. Well, I got to get these in while I can, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, we, we got a great episode today. This is a really interesting. Um, we thought after the success of uh, Picard Season 3, um, which brought back uh, the Dominion or Deep Space Nine, the founders, really, not so much the Dominion. Um, it'd be interesting to look back at the origin of Dominion, which is really one of Star Trek's most interesting alien antagonists, wouldn't you say? Oh, God, yes. She whistled while she injected us, exposed us, inflicted us with more pain than any being should ever be expected to endure. All to turn us into weapons. Perfect, undetectable spies, able to drop into any species and spread chaos. How very human. So you evolved from the biological experiments. I'm able to pass it on to any who want to join our cause. We link, they accept a shorter life, eternal pain for the ability to fool those who took everything from us. I didn't know. The Federation took my family. Now I will take yours. I mean, look, the, uh, the the various and sundry antagonists have their have their pleasures and their joys. We all love a good Borg now and again. Um, the Klingons are evergreen. Deep down, I think we want to love the Romulans, uh, <laughs> but you know they they never quite um, gelled as a uh, as a major antagonist. But I think the thing that was really special about the Dominion was always that it managed to capture a lot of the things that we like about. Um, those those different enemies, you know, implacable like the Borg, an identifiable culture like the Klingons, a three hundred year plan like the Romulans. Um, I don't know what they have in common with the Cardassians, except an obsession with uh, with Cardassia. Great makeup prosthetics. Yes, the Cardassians exactly. are probably the best makeup ever done on Next Gen, and Agreed. then the uh, Jem Hadar were the best makeup ever done a Deep Space Nine. I mean, they felt really alien and like really cool. And it's really hard to do that. I mean, we had on Pandora, we had an adversary the first season and I kept saying, I'm, I don't, people keep pitching. I'm like, I don't want to see those men in rubber suits anymore. I don't, I just, no, we have, we don't have the budget to do it well. I just can't have men in rubber suits. They, it looks terrible. Um, yeah, it's easy to do an animation. 
Yeah, right. He's strong. It, it's live action. It's brutal and it's expensive. And every suit is 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 really. And they say, "Oh, can you do a CGI?" That's even more expensive. So to do sort of human like animation. Um, but I really love because you know Robert was there for the genesis of 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 uh, the Dominion, and and I think you said it with the the Borg. It was the law of diminishing returns. You know, through the end of Voyager, it was really like. Enough with these guys, right? I mean, you know, was, yeah. they went to the well. They were too powerful for us to keep squaring off against them and winning, right? right. And, and not and, subtle and, enough, right? And not subtle enough. And 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 the Romulans were brilliant in the original series, and yeah. yet they never really got them in any of the subsequent series. Never really landed on what they were. Oh, they're mysterious. They're poker players, and they're like you know really tough. Uh, they're Except- always one step ahead, but. They never had a good motivation. And they had shoulder pads. That's what they had. Right. Like Klingons, at least, you know, they had a they had a motivation. Like we saw them a few times, obviously, in um in the original series, and they could just be the Klingons and be entertaining as the Klingons. But when we got to them in the next generation, what they got was a culture. They got God, it was a, Shakespearean. Um, it was yeah. great. Um we and understood what made them tick. But the Romulans were just kind of the bad guys. And because they were so inscrutable. We never really, I think, bonded with them as an enemy. And then the Deep Space, Deep Space Nine was brilliant in terms of turning the Frangi, which had failed as an adversary, into a comedic relief. Although it's unfair to say comedic relief because they had some very, uh, Quark had some very complex stories and was a complex, multi-dynamic character, dynamic character, uh, as were um, uh, Rom and certainly Nog. So yep. it, it's unfair to say they were comedy relief, but they, they understood how to use the Frangi and it wasn't as the villain you writ large um but the the dominion was and there was so much nuance to these various races the jemhadar the vorta the um and the founders and all brilliantly cast in in various forms um you know obviously some of my very favorite episodes revolve around this i know you love to the death the dice cast rocks and shoals is one of my favorites yeah all heavy dominion episodes um, and even what a great concept. We didn't talk to Robert about this, and I wish we had in um the episode um where they go sort of uh Jake and Nog sort of go on a vacation in the Gamma Quadrant, and it turns yeah. into it's the episode is the Gem Hadar, the yeah. uh the second season finale. And um we get our first taste of what the uh the Dominion is capable of uh when the Gem Hadar crash. Uh, their ship into the USS Odyssey, which is, you know, it's just a galaxy class starship, which, you know, seven years of the next generation has trained us to believe is the queen mother mm-hmm. of all starships and taking out something like that. I mean, just the, the, the iconography of that, the visual of that is like taking out the Enterprise D. And how could that possibly happen unless Deanna Troy is driving? <laughs> well, it was really interesting because it starts as sort of a frivolous, funny, light episode and then becomes something very dark and mm-hmm. different altogether. And it's a great way to introduce those characters. Um, and we'd also been conditioned to expect cliffhangers at that point. So in that sense, it may have been disappointing to certain people because it wasn't a really cliffhanger, but it did tee up the Dominion in a really compelling way. Who, by the way, you know, just to hear a point about um, the, the, the Borg, um, you know, one of the things about how they were used in Voyager was we could beat them, and we kept beating them, and we kept beating them back. The thing with the Dominion, and the thing that was special about the Dominion War is um, they weren't losing ever. 
Mm-hmm. It was even when we would score small victories, they were small victories. And it was um, it was always in a in a context of, you know, oh, OK, we won this battle, but the war seems hopeless. Always. I, I love that sense of hopelessness where the casualty uh, reports would come in and, you know, you could see Cisco not really since Kirk. He would feel the death of every one of those people on those casualty reports. That's and, right. um, you know, people were starting to become hopeless. And, and, you know, when you lived in paradise all, you know, for all these years that were born in paradise and then suddenly have, you know, paradise lost, uh, what a good name for an episode. Um, it was really, uh, you know, it, it breaks you out of your complacency. And I think that's just so great because it didn't break Star Trek. It didn't say the Federation was wrong. This was an external, menace and you know when we start to give up our values cisco and specifically his father call them out on this but it's it remains star trek it remains very much star trek and and i say that because there are a lot of shows and i think some people will see i don't want to get into the weeds of discussing some of these other shows but um there's something coming up in strange new worlds which i feel is very not star trek they do um sort of their court martial episode uh, their measure of a man. And the thing hinges, the catalyst for it is something that I feel is inherently un-Star Trekian at its core uh, without giving away too much about it. And we're not really going to discuss the show right. here on the Trexperts. Um, but, uh, I, you know, it, it, there's a really good performance in it. It's not to say it's without any, but, um, I, I found the, the premise to be, um, uh, the antithesis of what 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 really the Star Trek values are all about, but, which is um, interesting because you know look the the thing about the the Dominion and what they they did for Star Trek and kind of how um, how Deep Space Nine responded to the the threat they represented was in a way it foregrounded all of the things that we associate with Star Trek. It foregrounded the optimism. It foregrounded. Um, this sort of egalitarian society, all of these things that suddenly the premise of the show, the theme of the show is you're going to take it all for granted and you can lose it. Uh, and you mm-hmm. have to try to hold on to it. And these are the reasons we're going to dramatize the reasons why these things are worth holding on to and the struggle to hold on to them and the things that you might personally sacrifice to help others hold on to it. An episode like In the Pale Moonlight is impossible outside of the context of um you know something like the dominion outside of a, a larger sense that we're losing this thing to a threat that is believable it's not an alien of the week it's not the klingons again it's not the borg again it's not um asserted it's a thing that you feel and because of that i think that's the reason why you know we can watch cisco go through that story and make the choices that he makes and if and forgive him uh, mm-hmm. understand him and not let that take away our sense of him as a Starfleet officer and as a, a character on Star Trek because we get the stakes because that's how effectively um, you know the uh, the show drew its villains. Yeah, well, he's wrestling with the emotional consequences of, uh, and, and his conscience about, about this. It's, it's such a remarkable episode. I mean, we're not the first people to say that and we won't be the last, but um, it, it does such a great job of of not um, getting destroying the sort of Star Trek ethos, but at the same time showing how hard it is. Well, it's easy to be a saint in paradise, isn't that the quote? Yep. So um, when 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 paradise is in jeopardy, you know, 
how do you make the tough decisions? And that, that and that's something that these ethical questions are something that Deep Space Nine grappled with a lot. And uh, I think is what makes the show such a perennial and, you know, why we love it so much. And obviously why we love the Dominion as villains, which is something that Enterprise attempted with their Zindi arc and it doesn't work. You, I, I, and I, it just did, they didn't understand what worked so well about the, the Dominion that they didn't, they, they, they thought, oh, we're going to have multiple species, right? And, but it, it felt more like a Star Wars culture than a Star Trek culture. Right. Because it wasn't, it, it wasn't ever about that. With like, first of all, the simple fact is that Deep Space Nine got there first in imagining the anti federation. And not only did they imagine it first, they imagined it best. So now what they've done is they have established a bar, um, you know, that, that everybody else has to try to meet if they want to do something like that. The other thing that they did with that bar is they raised it very, very, very high. Yeah. Um, the, the Dominion felt like something that could exist, uh, assuming that certain conditions are true. Um, and it can exist in a way that is, that is very scary and in ways that are very primal. And the, the thing that's primal about, I mean, I mean, there's so many things about the, uh, the Dominion that, that feels like a primal threat. Number one, the Jem'Hadar, like, are a direct threat, uh, to your life. They still today, like, you know, the, the Jem'Hadar are probably the most dangerous badasses in the galaxy. I mean, next to the, the Borg, but frankly, I, I think if you like, you know, made the Dominion put its thinking cap on, on how to handle the Borg, I think they'd probably figure out how to handle the Borg. Um, yeah, but the the shapeshifters, the founders, right? The idea that you know paranoia. Who can you trust, right? What? Who are like? Who are the founders? What do they want? And it's inscrutable in a good way, in a way that the Romulans never were. Like behind the inscrutability of the Romulans was just sort of, well, I guess they're the bad guys. But behind the inscrutability of the founders is a plan. Mm -hmm. It is, you know, uh, and they have a plan. They have a plan. Yeah, exactly. And, and they have a thing that they want. They want to be left alone. Well, I have to say, we're very lucky today. We have somebody who was in the room, uh, who was part of, uh, the group that was creating the Dominion. It was there at the very beginning. Uh, Robert Hugh Wolf was a story editor on Deep Space Nine at the time. But uh, after leaving Deep Space Nine, he's gone on uh, to either uh, create or work on many successful shows, ranging from a show he was showrunner on, uh, Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda, to Elementary, which was a huge success for CBS that he worked on, um, and, and, and many other shows. So um, we're delighted to welcome back to the podcast, Robert Hewitt Wolf. Well, here we are with Robert Hewitt Wolf, um, and we're talking about the birth of the Dominion and um, such a fascinating concept uh, that Deep Space Nine introduced to the Star Trek mythology. And it also was a chance to sort of a course correction. Is that too strong a word for the show? Uh, yeah, I would almost argue, yeah, it probably was because it wasn't like we didn't intend to do something with the Dominion. It was just sort of like, you know, we were figuring that out. So it was kind of like, a real course realization, I would say, is probably <laughs> better. I, did you in the, and that before Ira came on board? How did you feel about you know that first 
you know, first season going to the second season, who your adversary was. I mean, obviously, Next Generation kind of had the Borg. They had the, you know, the Romulans a little bit. Um, Voyager would end up having the Borg again. You know, Enterprise would have its own set of adversaries. But who did you feel prior to Dominion was sort of the Deep Space Nine, the villains of your show? Well, I, I mean, it was the Cardassians, really. I mean, Golducott was set up as the villain, overall villain of the show from from the first episode, and you know, arguably, he kind of still is. Um, and then Kai Wen was was, I mean, Vedic at the time, but was set up to be a major villain uh, from uh, the finale of season one. Um, we always kind of were looking for a Bajoran villain or presence on Bajor that would cause us problems too. So those were, those were, those, they were definitely set up to be uh, the major villains for the show. And arguably at the end of the day, again, they both kind of still were obviously the dominion uh, became sort of a third, a third part of that in, in a way. Yeah. Because of course in the circle trilogy, uh, the politics of Bajor and Franklin Jella and Louise Fletcher also wonderful. And then yeah. The series is sort of bookended with that, with Louise Fletcher um, and, yeah. and Ducat being so so important. But at what point did you start discussing, I guess it's best described as maybe the anti-Federation, because the Dominion is sort of like the flip side of it. They have all these different races and uh, uh, they're, you know, um, but in this case, they've subjugated them. Yeah, we started talking about that probably pretty early on in season two. I mean, we we were... Yeah, would be, it was early because we first mentioned them in season two. We'd already figured a lot of that stuff out. Um, early season two, even going out of season one and into season two, thinking about like, we sort of thought of it as the face of the Dominion. Like, how do we define the Dominion as something that is interesting and surprising? And the idea that there'd be a, um, I think at the time I I'd either just read or maybe I read it later and I'm confabulating, but uh, there's that... Um, book Guns, Germs, and Steel mm -hmm. uh, by Jared Diamond. And they talk about, he talks about something called an outside context problem, which is what the Spaniards were to the Aztecs, right? The Aztecs were the top of the pyramid where they were. They had everything figured out. You know, Moctezuma in, in Tenochtitlan was eating fresh seafood every day for, for, for dinner because they were running it to him by relay runners. Given the technology and the limitations of their terrain, they basically were an alpha civilization and they could handle pretty much anything except when the Spaniards showed up, they were completely outside of their normal context and they had evolved in a completely different place. They were also an alpha civilization, but they had a lot of advantages that the Essex didn't have. And so that's kind of what we were thinking about for the Dominion. Like what's the outside context problem? What's the group that we're going to meet that just throws a monkey wrench into the Federation, you know, in, into their sort of, idyllic existence you know in as many ways as possible and yeah so that was that was early season two end of season one going into season two that area. i'm i have to say i'm always amazed when we talk about these things from 30 years ago and like you talk about it as though it happened yesterday and it's like i'm always because we treat people like that we're like you know so you know a couple of weeks ago we had brandon on it was like so in all good things things in scene three act you know act four you know scene three and it's like the same thing it's like we're asking you all this the minutiae about this and people are, it's three freaking decades you've done a ton of shows since then yeah. you've been on shows longer than that and and it's like and yet 
you still remember the minutiae of doing Deep Space Nine. Is that because it was so meaningful or you just have this eidetic memory? I mean, it was my first gig. And like some things I remember better than others, frankly, right. like <laughs> coming up with the Dominion was a long process. It wasn't like a one off thing. You know, it wasn't like sitting in a room and writing a scene. It was a, a fairly lengthy process of discussions and meetings and, you know, memos and uh, all kinds of stuff. And so we we talked a lot about it. You know, we did a lot of it was it was Ira and me and Jim Crocker and Pete, Peter Allen Fields, mostly. And then we would sort of report to Michael what we had discussed and, and he would weigh in, you know, um, but it was a long process. And so that's to me why it, it probably is a little more memorable than like plot details, civil defense. You know what right, I mean? Right, 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 right. <laughs> And you started dropping breadcrumbs pretty early regarding the Dominion. Even before you had it all worked out, there were allusions to this other empire in the Gamma Quadrant and the, the different races and how they operated. We had it pretty worked out by the time we started mentioning it, to be honest. Uh, I mean, by the time, uh, what was it? It was a Ferengi episode. See, now now I don't remember every detail except that the, <laughs> the people that they met on the others, it was the Pell episode where they, you know, the people had the bad face paint. Um, uh, anyway, whatever it was called, Rules of Acquisition? Maybe. Yeah, Rules of Acquisition was, right. a, was uh, the first yeah. episode that mentioned the Dominion, I think. So by the time we mentioned them in that, and what was that, like, that was pretty early in season two, right? About episode yeah. eight, maybe-ish. Um, so about a third of the way through the season. By the time we mentioned them, we had a lot of that stuff worked out. So we were already sort of planning. Shadow Play mentions them. I don't remember if we said the word Dominion in, the sh in Shadow Play. I think we might have, but it certainly talks about this civilization that's out there causing problems, and that's why these refugees are on this planet. Um, I believe, yeah, we dropped it a few times. I mean, we just basically like wanted to shark fin it a little bit. Like, there's something out there in the water. It's scary, you know. Um, but, but again, we had a lot of the details already worked out by that time. What I'm amazed is in a 26 episode season that you were sort of playing the long game because Star Trek was sort of notorious for, you know, having this giant mall like the doomsday machine and eating up stories, right? So like whatever you came up with, like went to the page and to the stage right away. And, um, I, I, and, and yet this was something where you sort of parsed it really, you know, tentatively where it, it, it took a while to actually get to what you were leading up to which i i thought was you know it's really ballsy and that's why i think it, it landed so well well we really wanted to we 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 basically planned that the season finale would be the full introduction of the dominion you know and so or at least of the Gemadar and the Vorta. so you know we we definitely figured we'd we parceled out it would be the mystery of the season so we just played it like the mystery of the season and you know yeah there wasn't a lot of i mean so not like there was no um serialized television at the time but yeah it was different for star trek star trek didn't do it a lot of that so yeah we just we think we thought about it as a mystery like we wanted the audience to be like what's going on out there and then when the, the word dominion comes up what the fuck is the dominion who are they what are they and then when they finally met them, obviously you wanted to like pop their eyeballs up. <laughs> so, yeah, the thing that's about the Dominion that's that's different, and it goes beyond just that um, 
they have, you know, many different races that are a part of this thing. And it's an empire, not a federation and all that stuff, right? I mean, look, Star Trek has got a lot of bad guys who might have empires and most of them have bumpy heads and they have different philosophies and all that other stuff. But there is something about um, the Dominion that is that is extremely different and special. Um, it, it's probably the first time that we've seen a member of uh, of an of an enemy alien race uh, as, as part of the crew of a uh, of a Star Trek show before we even knew they were part of an enemy alien race. Yeah. Um, and you know that I must have been an aha moment. I mean, I can't imagine. Maybe I'm wrong that it's something that somebody knew about Odo. Uh, from the from the inception. I mean, what was the what was the moment that tied the whole room together for that? So what we did when we when we created the Dominion was we sort of first thought of it as again the anti federation, but but as an as a as a political entity that was more sophisticated in a way than the Klingons, you know, and every bit as clever, but every bit as scary as the Klingons, but every bit as clever as the Romulans, you know. And the idea being that we sort of modeled them on the real Roman, on the Empire, Roman Empire even more so than the Romulans were in a lot of ways, except for the name and some titles, right? But the idea of the operative function would be the same as the Roman Empire, which is essentially the carrot and the stick, which is like, we would like you to be part of the Roman Empire or be an ally to the Roman Empire. And you're like... Sure. And they suddenly build a bunch of roads and aqueducts. There's an and, upside. <laughs> you know? There's a big upside to being part of the Roman Empire, which is like some some a lot of places just join. You know, there's even somebody who sold their kingdom to them. You know, and and then if you said no, then it was like, oh, meet the Roman legions. They'll be they'll be coming to your doorstep now, and you don't get the nice way anymore. And so that was sort of our basic idea. So the first thing we wanted to come up with was the carrot and the stick. And then we knew above them there would be the founders, you know, the people who created it, the dominion that were this big mystery. Otto, what have you done to him? I allowed him to experience the link. Odo. Yes, Major. Are you all right? What happened? I'm not sure. But I know one thing. She's right. I am home. But pretty quickly, we started wondering if maybe that would be the shapeshifters. That that could be a really interesting uh, and and dangerous facet, and also would explain Odo. Like Odo was essentially a sentient probe, you know. Um, and so we. We came up with the idea, well, what if the, so we first had like, there's the founders, we haven't met them, we don't know what they look like, we don't know anything about them, and then there's the Jem'Hadar and the Vorta, you know, the stick and the carrot or vice versa. I think the document probably went Vorta, Jem'Hadar probably. And then we started, we were like, went into Michael's office one day and we're like, what if <laughs> the founders were changelings, were shapeshifters? Odo's people were the big bads. And, you know, again, this is early season two. Michael hadn't really completely worked out the mystery of who Odo was going to be. You know, that was something he sort of left as a as a fun fill-in-the-blank, you know, for later, you know. Um, and he loved the idea. And we said, like, what we think we will do is, like, we'll meet the 
the, you know, we'll meet the Jemadar and the Vorta, maybe spend a whole season wondering who are the founders, you know, and then the big reveal at the end of season three will be the founders are Oda's people, you know. And Michael's like, you know what? No, it's too good. I want it, I want it at the beginning of season, at the beginning of season three, not at the end. Because, like, if you have something that good, you want to play it as long as you can. So why hold it, you know? And so right. that was Michael's idea was just, like, get it out there really fast, you know? So that's why the search, you know, reveals that pretty quickly. Which, as it turns out, was was probably not a uh, an insane instinct because it did let the show get into that fairly quickly, yeah. and you wound up with episodes like the Dias cast and Improbable Cause. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and I think that that was Michael's instinct, and it's something I kind of learned from him in a way, which is like if you have something that's really really good, don't hide it. You know, you don't need to hide it from the audience. Like like he he knew he instinctually knew, or sort of more than instinctually, like he just from experience he knew that he could get five years of story out of that. So why why just do four years of story? <laughs> you know, why spend a whole year looking around? And also then the shape of the second season would have been a lot like the shape, of the third season would have been a lot like the shape of the second season. In other words, we say dominion, 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 and then we have a big reveal, here they are. You know, we say founders, 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 do we, and then we spend an entire season and then here they are. And in Michael's world, no, we just go founders and here they are. And it's all those people and it's all fucked up, you know? And so I thought that that was really smart. You know, I think there was a good lesson. It's like, if you have some really cool key piece of mythology in a genre show, you know, put it out there, get to it, you know? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I, I going back 30 years, which I sometimes have trouble doing as well, vaguely recall, more than vaguely recall, Michael saying when I first talked to him about Deep Space Nine, you know, Odo's journey is like Data's. Data's never going to become human until the final episode. We're never going to find out the mystery of Odo until the ser- last episode of the series. <laughs> that was his initial plan. I mean, that was what he said to us all at the beginning. And so when we went into his office, we we're like, hey, you know, we're thinking this. And he's like, yeah, no, it's too good. Let's do it right away. You know? <laughs> we thought it was daring to take a year to do it when he told us we were going to do it until the end of the series. Uh, and so... You know, it was he. He really went for it in a way that I think really helped the show. But then you got thrown a curveball because you were teeing all this stuff up. You get to the end of third season, you're setting up the Dominion to be a huge part of season four, and then Michael Dorn comes to the show, and suddenly it's the Klingons and the Dominion sort of get, uh, uh, you know, uh, put on the back burner a little bit. What was that like in terms of your breaking the season and your whole approach to the future and that season of the show? Well, it was a curveball, but it did happen sort of towards the end of the season. And, the you know, it was sort of like the discussions of all that, that that was what was going to happen. We're all sort of in the place where we would have started thinking about season three. We'd already started thinking about season three. And basically, if I remember correctly, like a lot of the stuff that happens in season four was stuff we were talking about for season three. Now we're getting foggy. Now we're getting 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the discussions of Worf and the Klingons as a way to sort of, you know, give the <laughs> motivate next generation fans to tune in again, if they hadn't been tuning in for a while, uh, that all came up from discussions that were way above my pay grade with, you know, with Ira and Rick and the studio and stuff like that. And I don't know who said it. I mean, originally it was like, why don't you do a lot of Klingons? And then, you know, somebody might've been Ira. I wasn't in the room said like, well, well I don't want to, if we're not going to do, I don't want to do Klingons. Let's do the Klingon. Give us Worf, you know, somebody, it was somebody's idea. Anyway, 
That feels very Ira. I believe it. Yeah, it sounds like Ira. Uh, <laughs> I'll give him credit, even though I have no idea if he said it or not. Could have been Michael too. Um, but the uh, the point was what we wanted to make sure was that everything that was happening with Klingons was also the Dominion. That was really the the key was that it was all like the Dominion moves behind the scenes. They do a lot of you know they are sneaky, they are manipulative, you know they are they are willing to work through intermediaries and manipulate people and trick people into attacking each other. So that that all worked out. It was easy enough to sort of integrate that. And it just meant sort of delaying the Cardassians becoming the main Dominion puppet for a while. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So, so were, in a way it kind of worked out for you. Like you, it wasn't quite a lemon, but you made lemonade anyway. Like, you know, the, it, it gave you an opportunity to dramatize something about the, uh, the Dominion before they made it much, much worse. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, and that was always our plan was that, Part of the part of what makes the Dominion so scary is that they are willing to work on multiple different levels. They're playing; they are playing 3D chess, right? They're they're manipulating you politically. They're infiltrating you. They're they're setting their enemies on each other. They're sabotaging things. They're they're trying to tempt you to just join them and give up. And they have this giant and very effective and very scary military that they're willing to use when they have to. Um, and so this led us show the manipulative side, the infiltration side, the all that sort of more Machiavellian things that they're willing to do, you know? Well, it's interesting because Star Trek always very much focused on the mono-civilization. You know, we told our stories through one, one species, the whole planet was the same group, usually yeah. run by one guy in a council chamber, right? And sure. unless you needed two, where it was the Amenians and the Vendicans <laughs> and, or, you know, or the Zeons and whoever they were. So, uh, Captain so, Antoniel. The, and the Captain <laughs> Antoniel. And so... It was interesting that you guys sort of dove into a, you know, a, a, a culture that was a, sort of a triptych. Um, with, and then you also introduced these other species occasionally from episode to episode that were sort of under the leash of the, um, of the dominion. And yeah. I guess part of that was because you guys were such, unlike a lot of other science fiction shows or before or since very literate sci-fi readers. And one of the things that if I recall Ira asked everyone to do, was reread or read for the first time the Foundation trilogy. Yeah, we did that. I wouldn't say we got a lot of answers from it, but we did that. <laughs> um, but no, we 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 definitely didn't want it to be a monoculture. And in fact, like I wanted the hunters to be part of it too, and 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 be part of the one Herogen? of the. Huh? No, that's not the Herogen, was the it? Hunters from Tosk. Oh right. Okay. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I wanted them to be a visible part of the Dominion and be like the crew of the ships. Because my my idea was that the hunters are the guys who fly their ships, and this is the guy from Captive Pursuit from season one, right? Not Tosk, who was the prey, but the guys chasing him who were the hunters. Yes. Right. I still got it. Still remember this <laughs> shit exactly. <laughs> and at that point, someone above, well above my pay grade, was like, "Too many. It's too many. Three is five. Three is perfect. Four, too many. Number five is right out. Yeah, five is right out. Exactly. The number of that counting shall be three. Um, and so, yeah, that was uh, that was uh, that was maybe a bridge too far in having a, a big diverse empire. But but it was that was always my hope. And I, I I tried I tried several times to make that fly, and it just I just could never. Get it. <laughs> One of my favorite sci-fi, and I'll say trope, but not in a. Uh, a negative way is, is shape shifting. You know, bad, the body snatchers. 
yeah. kind of story. Um, and it's done so well um, in Deep Space Nine. Was there ever any talk of tying it into Conspiracy, which was the Next Gener episode that also dealt with shapeshifters? Shifters and we was talked about it not so much conspiracy. We actually talked more about that shapeshifter that was in Star Trek Six. Oh, Amon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Six, yeah. six, right? Not everyone keeps their genitals in the same place. Yeah. So we were we all were like, was that a, that was a changeling? Maybe you know. <laughs> um, but uh. Not conspiracy. Conspiracy, like I feel like conspiracy was actually kind of a drop thread that could have been a really great arc for for next generation that they never yep. did, um, or didn't really follow through with, uh, you know. But we we sort of had our own. I mean, those were those were parasites, right? Remember, remember yeah, that? Yeah, 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 those were, were uh, parasites, more like yeah. puppet masters. Puppet masters. Yeah, I think they at were some more, point before I'd seen all the episodes of Picard season three, I said to Terry, I said. You're bringing back the, the parasites from conspiracy, right? This is where this is going. I'm ready. <laughs> it's like I haven't, I haven't gotten to, I haven't gotten to start season three, but yes, like I've always thought that was a huge missed opportunity for next generation, to be honest. But so we just did it anyway, and we did it with our own people because we didn't need the conspiracy bugs. Like the shapeshifters were every bit as dangerous, and in a lot of ways, probably I would say more dangerous, less cartoony in a, in a weird way. You know yes, what I mean? Very much so. Um, and episode like resonant. With Oda. It, where you do, you know, yeah. sort of seven days in May and just the idea of it could be anyone. We basically brought down the values of the Federation with three changelings on Earth or whatever it was, five changelings on Earth. You're yeah. right. He's a lot less goofy and a lot more grounded than something like people's heads blowing up and <laughs> we've replaced everyone in the Federation. Yeah. Yeah. And like, the other thing I, I, I actually really liked about our take on the founders was their motivation made sense. Mm hmm. You know, the, the fact of the matter is that they were scared. <laughs> you know, the truth of the matter of the founders is that they are scared and they're doing everything they're doing to protect themselves. And it's kind of on one level, like it's fully understandable, you know, but it's also horrific in a weird way. Like a lot of wars are started out of fear, right? And and to to have been a victim culture and then to be sort of an oppressor culture is a really scary thing, you know. And I think we all have our great origin. You know, every country feels like they're the, you know, the plucky underdog that rose to the top, and then you know, but a lot of countries then go on and do all kinds of horrible shit. So, so we thought that that was interesting too. So were there third rails that you know? I mean, look, it's a shapeshifter story. The second that you do that, I mean, it's just I I I try to think about it in the context of deep space nine only as a fan. I like when I try to think about how the hell um, to sit back and break a, a season of television or a few seasons of television where that is the problem. Uh, I mean, I, I can imagine that keeping me up at night. Like were there things that you guys thought about doing and rejected because as you like to say, or like to say like on a show, like, well, that idea is good for the episode, but bad for the show. Like, was there stuff you guys talked about with the shapeshifters, like doing more with them or less with them? Or what was the, how did you find the balance? I don't, you know, we kind of did it episode by episode. We broke it episode by episode. We sort of had a vague idea for the general shape of the season. And we just sort of felt like, okay, like this would be a great episode to, to like pull a great shapeshifter reveal in, you know? 
um, or explore the founders in a different way or explore the Jemadar or the Vorta or whatever we thought, you know, it might be time to have a little bit of uh, a little bit of that. We maybe it's been 10 episodes since we did any really cool stuff with the shapeshifters. Let's maybe there's a way to work them into this episode. Right. Like the greatest shapeshifter reveal of all time being finding Julian Bashir in prison. Yeah. Yeah. That was a big surprise to 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 Sid. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, "Wait, wait, wait! When did I start playing a shape? What was I? I you should have told me I was a shape." I was like, "We didn't know. We just made it up." <laughs> and it turned out better that well, way. I would have done something different. And we're like, "No, no, we don't want you to do anything different. Like that's the whole point, you know? You can't tell. No one can tell. So that was funny. and 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 you know, even though you didn't fall into sort of the shapeshifter tropes." I mean, the one time I think you, that the show did, it did it so well. And of course, it's that the blood test from the thing, which you guys did in the adversary, but it's, it's so deftly executed that it doesn't feel derivative. Thanks. Yeah. And then we immediately undermined it the next time it came up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still love that Joseph Sisko speech where he's like, if I were a smart shapeshifter, this is what I would do. And this is how I get around this stupid test. And you'd be like, well, that would actually work, Jeff. <laughs> Damn. Pretty smart for a chef. Uh, <laughs> the wise dad. A chef shifter. The shape shifter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it is a logical way to, to do, to test for that, right? I mean, their blood is fake. I mean, even more so in the thing, it's like, because in the thing, the idea was basically that every part of the thing would defend itself, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Whereas this was like separate. When you separate a piece of a shapeshifter from itself, it turns back to goo. You know, once mm -hmm. it turns to goo, or it can't maintain it. You know, for a certain amount of time. And so, I mean, yeah, it was a little bit of a riff on that that gag from the thing, but it had a different internal logic to it that was more consistent with like what our how our shapeshifters work versus the thing. You know. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, I mean, how, how much did Renee want to know? You mentioned how uh, Sadig, you know, was like, "Oh, I, I wish I'd known I was a shapeshifter." Was did Renee care? He just said the words, you know, because he was such from the theater. It's like it's all about the words. Uh, it is possible to both care and. Say <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 uh. Uh, Renee cared deeply about his character, uh, but he also took from the script who he was and what he was saying, where he was going, you know, and I'm sure there were discussions occasionally if he felt like something wasn't working for him. Um, but in general, although the first thing Renee would do when he got a text, when he got the script, would he would, he would take a black Sharpie and cross out every single parenthetical that Odo had, like any beats, he would cross <laughs> all that out. He'd cross out any action that indicated how he should play something. That was like step number one. F you, I'm not doing any of this, you know? <laughs> and then he would he would start from the text, like a theater actor, and he would analyze the text, and he would really do his homework, and he would work his way through the text, and he would then understand how he would embody that text, you know? And he would, I mean, it was work perfect all the time, right? But, but it was all about, like, how he would interpret it and how he would play it. Um, so I think a lot of the times all the actors just learned what their characters were doing in an episode by reading the episode. You know, also you gotta remember like 26 a year, seven, eight day shoots, like they were on a freaking crazy treadmill too, right? 
And so a lot of times it was just a matter of practicality. Like they, they couldn't think about the next episode until they finished the one they were in and dumped all that stuff out of their head. And then they had room for some more, you know? Yeah. And you had crazy uh, hours. I mean, Fridays and you're seeing the daylight on Saturday morning. And so oh, yeah. maybe they had Sunday, you know, they had Sunday themselves and then they were back at it on Monday. At, and, and the people in prosthetics were there at four or five in the morning. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, the only the only thing that saved them was that it was really a true ensemble show, you know, and there would be episodes where like Kira had a line where Nana got like a whole episode off or like, you know, where we would, you know, we would we would not make every there wouldn't be a lot of episodes in a row where one character was heavy. We were always trying to. So that was where they got their breaks. Um, it was just, OK, this is a heavy Bashir episode, but I know next episode I'm barely in. So or the one before that I was barely in. So. So that's when they, they they got it together. And they were able to, like, I mean, you know, um, Armin and Renee did, like, they rehearsed all their scenes on their own time. I have no idea when they found time to do that, but they did it. And they were the ones that had to be in makeup the most, so. And these characters are only as good as the casting in addition to the writing. And you were very fortunate in that most of the casting for the Dominion was superb, whether it's Jeffrey Combs is. Wayun, um, or Clarence oh, Williams the way III, and, and yeah, and Gem, you know, as a Gemma Dar and many of the others who were cast. It was very rare, or Dennis Christopher, who, you know, it's very rare you would get saddled with somebody who was a dud. You know, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Who's just, oh, we were, we were, well, look, I mean, and this is kind of credit to Rick and Ira and Michael. I mean, they were really, especially, I mean, Ira did a lot of this, but they were very, very good at casting, you know. Um, Iroh is amazing at casting. I mean, the guy know there, there used to be these. This is like so so pre computers, but there used to be these casting books that were like books. Yeah, with the players' like, guide, right? The yeah. players' guide. That's what they yeah. were called, and they were like phone books with pictures of all these actors in them and like their resumes and stuff. Did they even have their resumes? I think they had their resumes and stuff too, right? And Ira knew those books by heart. Like he just knew them. I, I, he knew every actor's name. Like he 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 knew all these character actors' names and stuff like that. Like I'm terrible at actors' names. So he would have like a library of actors in his mind whenever we would have a big role come up. And then you know, I think we must have had a really good reputation in the community because we would get amazing people showing up and, and auditioning. You know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, because you had had Harris Yule and you had had Frank Langella, you had Louise Fletcher. I mean, Oscar winner. I mean, so it's it's not you know, Oscar it winners. It's not Buck Rogers, you know. Yeah, I mean, we had a couple Oscar winners. You know, yeah. we 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 were just incredibly blessed to be able to have the kind of people who were wanting to do the. I mean, these are tough. It was a tough gig, man. The makeup, especially like tough, and like Clarence Williams the third, and like, I mean, you know. Um, Jesus, now, uh, uh, what's his face? He played Black Lightning, it was terrific too. Um, damn it, I can't remember his name anyway. See, like, because you're terrible with actor names, yeah, exactly. I'm terrible. With names. <laughs> like, Get out right the players' guide. No, I know, sure I can IMDb them now, Google, Google. <laughs> but, but, um, but also, like, uh, even the first Borda, like, she was really good. I, I, the, the actress who played Eris was quite good, you know. Um, it's just like once we got Jeffrey, we were like, oh yeah, yeah. Now you've uh -huh. got Jeff. Now, now we, we got a, Jeff. Now we got a Jeff. Ho ho ho. Jeff. Let's. Well, I mean, and with Jeff, obviously, we'd already used him once and not well, and so we we're like, we, that was kind of a waste of Jeffrey Combs. Like, we should 
use him again <laughs> and again and again well, and then again we were like oh we killed him we really shouldn't have done that so that's where we came with the cloning we came up with strictly to bring back him <laughs> that was not you know part what? of the power set Good choice. That's excellently uh, uh, motivated. But look, I mean, I think part of the reason I'd like to think that part of the reason why you guys did so well with casting, you're able to get, you're able to attract excellent cast was um, those. It, it, look, everything on that show is always, I, I think, you know, very well written. Like particularly, like when it got into the character stuff and how they they related to each other. But with respect to the Dominion, I mean, you guys would do really smart things like. The uh, a, a gimme episode would be, hey, we find a little Jem'Hadar and we raise him. And it turns out that, like, you know, when uh, you raise a cute little Jem'Hadar to be, like, a good person, well, then he's just going to be a good person. Nope, he is not. <laughs> he, is, he, he grows up. It is not nurture at all. Turns out it's nature and nature wants to kill you, yeah. which is brilliant. You know? I mean, look, I believe that the Jem'Hadar, when, when the founders first found them, they were like, how would you like to be? Superhuman killing machines. The Jem'Hadar were like, hell yeah. You know, they were, <laughs> you know I, I don't, I think it was like a combination of, of nature and the nurture that they got was all the genetic engineering that the founders did to them. Obviously, there was a ton of that going on too. Cress Williams. There you go. But by first, the same token, you do an episode like uh, To the Death, right? Yeah. Where you've got the Jem'Hadar teamed up with the Federation going off on a mission. And the thing that was interesting to me watching that episode, other than some incredibly lovely exchanges and moments of acting, like just, just Jeff Combs, just sort of tossing off, you know, that you vouch for the loyalty of your men. Um, <laughs> that kind of stuff it was really that, Oh, the Jem'Hadar are very different from the Klingons, frankly, yeah. even from the Romulans, right? Like the, the, the Klingons, are, they're warriors, but the Jem'Hadar, were professional soldiers. That was the that was exact that was the exact distinction we talked about in the writers' room. I mean, I'm a I'm an army brat. My dad was like a real deal. He was a Green Beret, you know, mechanized infantry. He was like a combat veteran, you know, combat infantry. His his proudest ribbon that he had, although he had a bunch of bronze stars and air medals, was his combat infantryman badge. Um, he was a soldier. You know, and that was kind of what our intent was with the Jem'Hadar. Like the Klingons are warriors, you know. the The Jem'Hadar are soldiers, man. They 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 get up, they eat their chow, they do their PT. <laughs> Not in that order. They do their PT, they eat their chow. Their uniforms are squared away. You know what I mean? Yeah. They, they have hospital quarters on their bunk beds. I mean, you know. Oh, now imagine the Jem'Hadar showing up in sweatpants. <laughs> at, at 0600 or with 0, your peloton yeah 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 little little day it's funny you mentioned just ira having an encyclopedic mind for casting i remember this is one thing i do remember from the 90s like i would go to the american cinematheque a lot to see a lot of i, I don't know how ira found the time but he was always there like yeah. Ira, Ira was always at the retrospectives, you know, whether Bud Bedecker movies or Seconds or John Frankenheim, you know, John Frankenheim. He, he, he was always there and he just loves classic movies. And so yeah. he knew so many of these people. And, and that's, you know, that's what's great because, you know, there come, a lot of casting directors will throw at you the people that the studio likes or people the network likes or people they know are easy or, you know, for, it's like, uh, you know, Ira pushed to get 
I think a better, that's why the casting Deep Space Nine, I think is much better than the next gen and just a higher caliber of actor. Yeah, we, we worked, re- I mean, we worked really hard. I remember some very long casting sessions, you know, and uh, I mean, that was back in the day where they came in, you know, there were no cell tapes, no Zoom, the office, yeah. <laughs> no Zoom. And like these poor guys were coming in and we would do like, you know, three hours of casting on, a, on an episode, you know, and, and we would see a lot of people. And there wasn't, you know, also back in those days, there was no offer onlys, you know, mm-hmm. everybody came in and read. Well, maybe not Frank Langell. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> maybe not Louise Fletcher. Yeah. But, but maybe. Like, but maybe. Yeah. I can't remember, to be honest. But like, Cress came in and read, and he'd been in, you know, he'd been on some great indie movies by then. And, you know, Frank Military came in and read, you know, like um, Clint Howard came in and read, <laughs> you know? So it's you like Tronya for everyone. Yeah, exactly. Tronya for everyone. Um, yeah, yeah, Clint came in and read, you know. So, so we were we were just that we were able to get all these guys to come in and read. And again, I I don't know that we had a good reputation. I have to just you know sort of like you know infer it from the available evidence. The fact that these people kept showing up year after year after year, you know, and that and that people would stick and come back, you know, that to me is what says okay, like. We're doing something right. The people people are willing to put on three hours of alien makeup, you know, multiple mm-hmm. times for us. So I guess they feel like we're we give them, you know, it's a good work environment and the work is good to do and rewarding and that pays off. You know, that's something I've sort of tried to take forward is like be a show where the actors want to come back and you and and it, it will reap you'll reap all kinds of rewards from that. You know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, to be on a sci-fi show, you got to hire sci-fi writers, right? You know, people who know and live and breathe science fiction. But more importantly for Deep Space Nine, you had a staff that knew history that and, 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 and politics. And it seems to me like that was far more important than knowing science fiction. Like, for instance, as much as we all love In the Pale Moonlight, an episode like that wouldn't exist if you didn't know about, you know, the Allies sort of planting, you know, fake plans for Normandy, uh, you know, on a corpse uh, to, to, to misinform the Nazis. It's like, and, and, and you guys like were able to take sort of these nuggets and turn them into these really delicious episodes. I mean, that was certainly our intention, you know, <laughs> it was also just like a show like Deep Space Nine, if it only was drawing from science fiction, you know, that gets old real fast, to be honest. Like, so a lot, we were drawing from history. We we're also drawing from classic literature, you know, uh, the, you know, the trial, Kafka, you know, the heart of darkness, mm-hmm. um, you know, we were trying to draw f- and, you know, yes, science fiction, but novels too, as much as anything, you know, like, like last, you know, is. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's sure. Like it is obviously you know, <laughs> ordered that inside, but so we were, we were trying to draw, we were, you know, part of the necessity of it too, was like 26 episodes a year. You better be drawing from all over the place, you know? Um, and be inspired by all kinds of things and interested in all kinds of things. But so between the, I mean, usually there were five of us at any given time. Uh, so between the five of us, you know, there was always, we had a lot of different points of view, a lot of different interests. And we would, you know, Ira was really into classical history. I was really into, Ron and I were really into um, history and military history, especially. Ron was really into spy stuff. You know, I was sort of, more like classic literature and classic science fiction stuff. Renee was plays and, you know, New York and, you know, 
the, the, he had a lot of other he was all that up. emotion crap a lot of emotion stuff I want you to remove those devices and bring them their combatches. We can't allow them to leave. And I can't allow you to keep them here. They're leaving. And so am I. It's taken you many years to find your way back home. Are you really willing to leave it again so soon? Unless you intend to stop me. No changeling has ever harmed another. Whatever you do to them, you're going to have to do to me. They are free to go. Thank you. The next time, I promise you, we will not be so generous. Major? Constable? What happened to the Rio Grande? The last thing I remember is collapsing the wormhole. The last thing I remember is being shot by some Jem'Hadar soldier. I'm sure it all seemed very real, but the truth is you've been held in this room since the Jem'Hadar brought you here from the Defiant. Marath, what the hell is going on here? Your ship is in orbit. You may transport back to it whenever you're ready. Commander, I'll be along shortly. Yeah, exactly. That was all. <laughs> so we had a lot of great different perspectives and we were always working together to try to highlight all those things. Hans, you know, to like, I mean, Hans is, I don't know whether you guys know, but like Hans was a, for a long time, he was like an AD and he like was the AD or second AD on moves like Cocoon and Falcon and the Snowman. So he he had a long career before he got into writing that was very kind of into doing very kind of art, you know, art award-winning movies, you know, <laughs> they were working in. So he had a lot of interest in that kind of stuff too. Are you happy with the way that the Dominion ultimately landed with the with how the resolution of sort of the Dominion storyline uh, obviously, it leads to one of the most impressive arcs in the, the series history, which is the Dominion War, which, you know, continues to reverberate in canon. Um, and it just was, you know, acknowledged in Picard, which was nice, um, to see that happen. Um, but uh, did you, did you feel good about the way ultimately that the Dominion storyline resolved? Look, I did. I mean, I wasn't there for the last two years. So the resolution, they actually offered me one of the ones in the last 10. And I was like, I didn't feel right doing it. I mean, I did the Esri episode, which was really fun as a freelancer. Um, but I just didn't feel right, do you know, sort of participating in those last 10 because it just felt like I wasn't like living and breathing the show anymore yeah. like they were, you know. Um, so I don't you know, I, I don't really second guess the, yeah, what they yeah, did because sure. I think it turned out really good, except I'm going to second guess them with one thing, which is I would have liked to have tied the profits and the paw race better into the Dominion War. At the yeah. very, my, mm -hmm. my, my belief has always been that part of why the wormhole opens when it does is because the profits wanted to open then because if it had not opened then, then the Dominion wouldn't have met the Federation for another three, four hundred years, and the Federation would have gotten pavement stomped at that point. Like, it would have been a rollover, because that was what the Dominion was planning to do. Like, they knew the Federation existed, and they were like, okay, in like two, three hundred, four hundred years, we're going to have to stomp these guys, so let's get ready. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they were already working on it, <laughs> you know? Um and that's part of why they were an outside context problem. So I've always believed that the prophets were like, mm -hmm. maybe we should introduce these people a little sooner <laughs> in whatever tiny, whimey senses that they had. <laughs> sort of like, 
like good in some way and that the paw race were involved in some way. But they, you know, I, I understood why they wanted to leave those things separate. I just thought it would be nice to sort of sew them together in some interesting way. So it, it, that's the, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the, the ending of the, and the resolution of the, the whole story is one thing, but kind of bringing it back to the beginning and you and your opinions, like from the beginning. So the, the legend goes uh, that, uh, that you wrote a, uh, a memo about the Dominion um, that got you in a little bit of trouble. So what's the truth behind that memo and, and what happened? True. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened was we'd been talking about all this stuff and we'd pitched the stuff about the founders to Michael and he totally was loving it. And he said, write it up for me. Write me a memo. Like that's, you know, again, like this is 30 years ago when people wrote memos, not even yeah. emails. It was like a physical memo, right? So I typed it all up and I typed up everything we've been talking about. And I said, like, from Robert to Michael, per your request, here is what we've been talking about with the Dominion. Boom, you know? And that's what I did. And it was very like, that's exactly what I wrote. And I think I'm, per your request, here is what Ira, Jim, Peter and I have been and talked to you about and you and have been talking to you and, and what we pitched you about the Dominion. So I did like talk about everybody, but whatever. Anyway, so Michael gets it. I think I I think I said that. Maybe I didn't. And maybe that was my mistake. But <laughs> I write this memo. And again, picture it's 30 years ago. It comes out of the printer. I think you like I had a printer. And I take the memo and I put it in an inner office envelope, which is this manila envelope that you could open and close with string. And on the front, there were there were like lines that said two from, two from, two from, two from. And what you would do is you'd cross out the last two froms and you'd go like to Michael from Robert. Put it in the outbox. <laughs> you know, or maybe I even walked it down to his. To the kids his, have uh, no idea what you're talking about. I know, Sadly, I, know. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Down the hallway, down the stairs, actually, and dropped it in Michael's inbox. Right. Did what I was supposed to do. Michael reads it and he loves it. He loves it. And again, this is all stuff we've been talking to him about. And he writes on it. Forward to Rick. FYI puts it back in one of those envelopes, crosses out Robert to Michael, writes down Michael to Rick, throws it in his outbox. Some PA brings it over to Rick's office. Rick gets it and flips out because he thinks I have invented the Dominion on my own, pitched it to Michael, and I'm somehow, and I remember I'm like a story editor at this point. I am a very low rank. Executive writer. story editor, I think. No, no, no. No, not even. Dude, okay. I was a story editor. I might okay. have still been a staff writer because I was a staff writer for the beginning of season two, but I think I was a story editor by then. Anyway, Rick flips out because he thinks I have jumped past Ira and Jim and and Pete. He thinks that I have somehow like overstepped. And so he was furious and he basically wanted to fire me. Um because he thought I was basically being a punk who, like, you know, overstepped. And so then, then Michael explained everything to him, and it was fine. It was just one of those things. It was just like a moment where everything was just like... Oh, it was an outside context problem? Yeah, I didn't, yeah, exactly. And I didn't even know I was in trouble 
until they were, I was told, uh, so you're not in trouble. I'm like, what was I in trouble for? <laughs> Don't worry, Michael took care of it. Like, what? What did Michael take care of? I mean, look, Michael also, like, he, you know, because of the way he forwarded it, like, it was just the whole, the whole situation made it look like I was being a, uh, he didn't even put, I love this. He just was like, FYI, you know, like he just didn't even like put on to any, any like spin onto it or anything that said, like, I asked the guys to write this up and here it is. And I approved it. What do you think? Like, no, just Michael, FYI. And so Michael got it. And I think Michael thought like I, he was forwarding it. Like, like Robert is trying to usurp power. I don't know what the fuck. <laughs> but anyway, it all blew over very quickly. Oh my God. Well, you then went on and show ran your own big sci-fi show, Andromeda. What yeah, big, I don't know big. That's a, okay. that's a, that's a. <laughs> go with me on this. So, uh, <laughs> what, what were your kind of, and we probably should do a whole show just on Andromeda, but I'm going to, I'm going to kind of like land with this, which, and with this, which is what did you take away? What were your big takeaways from the Dominion and creating an antagonist for Deep Space Nine alone without any help? Um, <laughs> but uh, to, um, uh, to, you know, when you had your own fiefdom. Well, so, you know, it was all about like what's what kind of antagonist best serves the story. Right. And so for Andromeda, the story I wanted to tell was about a, a civilization that had fallen and that there was a dark age, essentially, like the real dark ages weren't that bad. But like what we always thought of as a dark age back in the day. Right. And that now our hero was trying to rebuild his lost civilization during the Stark Age. So my thought was, like, what would make a giant and super powerful, bigger than the Federation, more powerful than the Federation civilization fall, you know? And and historically, civil war is usually the answer to that question, you know? Sometimes it's an outside context problem, sometimes it's a civil war. So I did both. I did an outside context problem, the Magog, mm -hmm. Who the handling of whom triggered a civil war because the Nietzscheans were very unhappy with the peace that was struck. You know, they were basically like, this is stupid. We're just, you know, this was, this is appeasement, you know, in their minds, we, they had the peace that was struck was, was a disaster and they needed, they needed to tear down the, the, the Commonwealth to fight them, you know, so that there'd be to better fight the Magog, which was whatever Nietzscheans that's there. Overthinking that's, it. Overthinking it, yeah, a little bit. And also, like, not trusting other people because that's right. the big problem with the Nietzscheans, right? They don't trust anyone, including themselves. And so they're always acting like cooperation is not a good idea. You know, that's their basically fatal flaw as a species, as a subspecies, because they're, they're human beings at the end of the day, too, right? So, yeah, the, um, that was, so that's how I was thinking about it all. I was thinking about, like, what makes a civilization fall? what kind of spark would it need? And then that gave me the, the antagonists for Dylan to be fighting against. And then ultimately, you know, I was also sort of thinking in, in sort of like bigger sort of um, almost apocalyptic scale. Right. So the bigger, what was behind it all to me was like this idea of like the tension between creation and destruction, you know, and law and chaos, you know, and stasis and change and all these kind of things. And that's ultimately what the big fight, which never, I don't think was ever on the screen because I was gone after season one and a half, but that was what the big thing that was behind it all. The, the minion equivalent was essentially like the, 
the embodiment of stasis trying to collapse the entire universe back down to before the Big Bang. <laughs> <laughs> it's like there's a there's a power behind the power. And right. it's it's diffuse, it's interconnected, but in ways that aren't necessarily um apparent uh at immediate view. That was the idea. And ultimately the idea was it would be an apocalyptic struggle where essentially, you know, Dylan and his crew had to I mean, stop the big collapse or or kill God or, you know, essentially something like that, you know, which I thought would be a really cool because I like I like science fiction, which. Like it escalates in a way, you know what I mean? Like it mm -hmm. starts out, OK, he's trying to rebuild civilization and the Magog and the, you know, Nietzscheans are the problem. And then each little world he connects. Great. He's he's making progress. But ultimately, like there's something worse behind it. And that, you know, taking from Michael's point of view, I revealed that at the end of season one. Yep. You know, I didn't explain it all, uh, but at least I was like, look, there's this thing. It's out there. It's bad. It's coming. Yeah. You know, that was the idea. Cool. Well, I'm so appreciative of you taking the time to talk about this thing from 30 years ago. I, I Like I said, I'm amazed at how much you actually do remember. I'm always amazed when we have these conversations. But I guess is we're nuts about this stuff. So, I mean, everyone who worked on it shouldn't be surprising that a lot of the people worked on it are, are still nuts about it, too. I mean, look, it was also 12 hours a day of our lives, yeah. five to seven days a week for five years, you know. So, Not counting the sleepless nights thinking about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I left after five years because I was burnt out, you know? Um, so it, 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 and it, but look, it was a great experience. So it holds a very, um, it was an intense experience, but it was also a great experience. So it holds a sort of special place for, I think, a lot of people worked on. And people, you know, can't imagine now what that was like. Those, I mean, you, you, you know, you came off recently a network show which had full seasons, but that's a rarity. Um, obviously the experience you had with elementary for those many years, but, um, it, it, it's rarer and rarer that you get an experience like you had and, uh, galloping around the cosmos is truly a game for the young because 26 episodes and a tiny hiatus, but you know, um, you loved it and you created great television. And as Ira said 30 years ago, he said, look, you know, we may not have the best ratings. We may, yeah, you know, people may say, oh, it's the show that goes, but 30 years from now or whatever he said, he said, people are going to appreciate the show. They'll discover it and realize how great it was. And he was right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was one of the most prophetic things he ever said. Like, <laughs> we'll appreciate us when we're dead. We'll feed yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, but thankfully, it, it, it didn't take that. You know, we, we're not dead. <laughs> we didn't have to wait for dead. Yeah, we didn't have to wait for dead. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think the great thing about, the thing we knew was that, you know, Star Trek doesn't end when the show ends, right? We sort of knew that it would be around in some form. We, I didn't, we, no one anticipated streaming, but we kind of thought, oh, well, you know, it'll be on every night at midnight somewhere. Right. You know? yeah, right. <laughs> um, and people like VCR it and, you know, watch them <laughs> uh, and they'd appreciate it. And, and, and you know, I think it, I, I don't even think he and I or anyone on the show thought it would do as well in some ways as it has. I mean, I still think like there's still fans. I see fans on the, on, online are like, I'm watching Deep Space Nine for the very first time, or I've just watched Deep Space Nine for the tenth time all the way through, you know, and it's <laughs> it's pretty cool, you know. Yeah. I met somebody on the picket line today who was a giant Deep Space Nine fan and actually recognized me. So um it was cool. It's cool, yeah. you know. It's a it's a nice legacy. 
Fantastic. Well, Robert, always good to have you on the show. We're going to have to have you back one of these days. It's been too long since we had you last. Um, and of course, it, it must be nice on the picket line to see your dialogue from bar associations so frequently quoted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of picket signs out there with my dialogue on it. Uh, <laughs> Especially at Paramount. I don't see them so much where I pick it all the time. <laughs> yeah. The signs yeah, tend yeah. not to move too much, you know, like yeah, signs yeah. stay whatever. So there's a lot of those at Paramount. Uh, <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thanks again. And uh, hopefully we will talk to you uh, soon. Okay. Cool. All right, guys. Nice, man. And we're back. That was a really interesting interview. I heard a lot of things I never heard before from Robert about the birth of the Dominion, huh, Ashley? Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, I mean, uh, Robert, uh, I've known Robert for a very long time. Um, I, I've known him uh, about as long as I've known anybody uh, in this business. Um, he gave me my first job. I worked with him on Andromeda. I heard a lot of the war stories uh, when uh, when I was working with him um, while he was while he was running that show and basically like acting as like my my first uh, film school professor, as it were. But uh but yeah, the the stories are endless, and it's always it's always fascinating to see. You know, when you talk to writers about the the projects that made a huge impression on them creatively, you just watch the time machine activate in their brains, and suddenly they're there. And, you know, the, the, the details of things, notwithstanding the thrust of things feel right. And just listening to Robert tell those stories, um, you can see like what a huge impression those experiences made on him, uh, as a writer and a creator, like just, and as a producer, like everything just sort of, it's just, it was just coming out. And, um, it was just, it's fascinating to watch that. Absolutely. And more importantly, I think I have all our dinner reservations set up for Raleigh, Ra Raleigh, 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 and and San Diego and Vegas. So excellent! This is a I'm, good thing. I'm excited. Yeah. I hope there's meat. Oh, there'll be. There will be. There will be. <laughs> there will there be will meat. Be. <laughs> <laughs> Rejected titles for movies starring Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's it's, it's going to be fun, and we've told you about this on the show before. Uh, you know, I got to tell you, and if you're not listening already to uh, Trexperts Plus through the Deck 78, you're missing out on some phenomenal, phenomenal shows. Um, we just had a really killer show um, on Six Million Dollar Man, uh, which um, premiered on uh, Deck 78 uh, last week uh, or earlier this week. And it's phenomenal. Um, and you definitely need to check it out. And the only way to do that is to subscribe at TrexpertsPlus.com next week. Uh, or, or in two weeks, um, we'll be bringing you a very special conversation we had with Ken Wall, the wise guy himself. That's the star of Wise Guy and, and movies like Taking Up at Beverly Hills. Really terrific. And, uh, you can only hear it on Deck 78. So, uh, you'll, you'll want to check that out. And, um, uh, of course, uh, we got some other real special treats planned, including the Trexpert screening room, which is available to our Deck 78 members as well, where they can share, uh, screenings of, um, great beloved and not so beloved science fiction movies with the Trexperts. So, or, or the Dexperts in this case, the uh, which now includes Stephen Melching for the 430 yeah. movie. Who We, we jumped him into the, the gang just last week. Indeed. Indeed. So we're thrilled to have him and we're, we're thrilled to have you join us at Trexpertsplus.com. And of course you can follow us on social 
at Twitter on uh, Inglorious Trek, and Instagram on Inglorious Treksports, Facebook and Inglorious Treksports as well. And we'll be uh, out and about on the Inglorious Live Tour all summer long, starting at San Diego Comic-Con, followed by our North Carolina jaunt uh, for Galaxy Raleigh. Con. Yeah, Raleigh. And uh, then we'll be... <laughs> Then a week later, we'll be in Las Vegas for Creation's epic 57-year mission uh, convention, where we'll be doing a couple of panels there as well. Um, and finally, uh, we'll be rounding things out Labor Day weekend in Austin, Texas, at uh, GalaxyCon Austin, or as I call it, Aston. No. Aston. Austin. Yeah. So, uh, Sean Aston. John Aston. No, it's, it's Sean. Uh, what? What? So what? anyway, we hope you can join us at one or more of those fabulous conventions where we'll be doing a lot of exciting panels and a lot of fun stuff. And uh, as I call it, the Mark Altman farewell tour. <laughs> <laughs> or a new hello. You know. But we, we, we know, you know, everybody's gone. The Who has been going on the same farewell tour since, uh, I think, 1982. So speaking right. of 1982, uh, coming on July... 8th, Saturday, July 8th, is the premiere of my new TV series, Greatest Geek Year Ever, 1982, a four-part look at the great movies of 1982, including Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan. So uh, if you want to look back at some of the great movies uh, you love and maybe some you never heard of, check out The CW on July 8th. That's my latest plug. No book this year. Instead, I'm plugging <laughs> the, the documentary about 1982. So that will replace me plugging my books for now. Um, and uh, of course, on every Tuesday, every other Tuesday, you can join Peter and Lisa in the Trexperts briefing room for curated commentary of significant Star Trek episodes. And I believe Robert Wolf did an episode with them recently. You should listen to that as well as their other fabulous episodes. Um, and that's it. We got nothing else because Darren's not here. So there's nobody yeah. doing the funny voices. There, there's no one, uh, uh, you know, talking about Star Trek, the motion picture. There, there, <laughs> no, no one bringing on the charm. It's just me and Ashley. The charmer is yeah. not here. So you're stuck with us. Bullshitting. We're just bullshitting. Exactly. That's and, uh, but we're, we're delighted that you joined us this week for another episode of the Trexperts. And of course, we'll be next, back next Thursday with an all new episode. So until then, on behalf of a wondrous, Darren Dockerman, in absentia, Ashley Edward Miller, and myself, Mark A. Altman, keep on trekking, ingloriously, of course. Shh. Engage. <laughs> hey, I know the episode was over. I know the episode was over, but we're back because Ashley and I have just realized that Darren's not here, so we can talk about what a great character Vatic was in Picard Season 3, which he hated. Uh, yeah, not right. Picard season three. He just didn't like Vatic, which is crazy because Amanda Plummer was awesome and she was she a change. Really awesome. Yeah. And she was so. a founder. Well, she wasn't really a founder, but she was a founder. She was a founder. Yeah, she exactly. Was a founder. She was a mean founder. But I Very guess, mean if, founder. Uh, I guess if the Federation tried to uh, wipe out your entire race, you'd be pissed off too. Yeah. No kidding. Give me like genocide. Oh, wait, Genesis. <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> anyway. Nobody's taking away genocide. <laughs> we're, okay, that's it for now. So uh, we're going to go, and that's all we're going to do. That's all there is. No more that's posters. But uh, we, we had to get that in since Darren's not here. So anyway, keep on trekking, and gloriously, of course. 